Hello and welcome to the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I am joined by my wonderful co-host Lee. Hello. And uh, we, we had an interesting one this week. Oh, do we ever. Uh, we watched Cecil B. DeMille's 1927 film The King of Kings. Yes, we did. Yeah. Uh, I'll quickly do the synopsis from the cri- back of the Criterion. The King of Kings is, and this is our all in capitals, by the way, the greatest story ever told, <laughs> as only Cecil B. DeMille could tell it. In 1927, working with one of the biggest budgets in Hollywood history, DeMille spun the life and passion of Christ into a silent era blockbuster. Featuring text drawn directly from the Bible, a cast of thousands, and a great showman's singular cinematic bag of tricks, The King of Kings is at once spectacular and deeply reverent. Part gospel, part technicolor epic, the Criterion Collection is proud to present this beloved film in a two-disc... Uh, it's fine. We, we're going now. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. we're done. Yes. Podcast over. No. Yes. Um, I mean, okay, we, we talked about this while we were watching the film. Um, at the beginning of this episode, we'll kind of put a little bit of a caveat, like, um, this is obviously a giant uh, biblical epic exploring the life and the passion of Christ, um, filmed in 1927, using Bible verses and things. Um, just a caveat at the top, uh, both Lee and I are not religious people, and so we're kind of gonna talk about our personal takes on that type of stuff, um, if that's something that you're not interested in, or like, we're not gonna lean heavily into it, but like, I mean, obviously it's gonna come up in discussion. Um, if that's something you're uncomfortable with, we don't mean to offend, um, it's more like, I guess... If something you don't want to hear, we'll catch you next week for Kagamusha. <laughs> Just putting that out there. 100%. It's very hard not to talk about religion yeah. when you're discussing a religious film. Yeah, and, and of course, like this podcast, we just want to have fun, discuss movies, but unfortunately, like with this one, it is steeped heavily in religious iconography and storytelling, so it's going to come up, and if um, we, the last thing we want to do is upset or offend anyone because we don't believe that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was so. actually really interesting because watching this, both of us had to uh, sort of acknowledge our beliefs or, or mm. where we stand with this. And it's honestly something I don't do every day and talk yeah. about what my beliefs are or whatever. And it was interesting because both of us have the exact same religious background. We're both Anglican yep. uh, growing up and both went to schools was your school religious mine was yes mine was a religious school there was prayer every day kind of thing and yes same with mine and and i went to church every sunday and all that sort of thing and i used to go to church every sunday until i got expelled from sunday school and my family was asked to never come back and why is that chris (laughs) uh because i was a hypo add kid when i was like five and i was too much for them to deal with Wow. Yeah, so I got my, really? the reason my family stopped going to church was because I was the spaz <laughs> kid and wouldn't pay attention in Sunday school. And so the church, the inclusive, wonderful church, asked us not to come back. That's really interesting. <laughs> it's funny because for me, uh, my mum, similar Anglican background, Anglican school, whatever, um, the reason we stopped going to church is my brother came out gay. Mm. And uh, the church uh, did not condone that. And yeah. so... My mum uh, swiftly stopped going. Understandably, she yeah. She still has her beliefs, but uh, yeah. Especially, you know, uh, an organisation that founds itself on peace, love and understanding. Like, you know, mm. and then, to, yeah. It's the whole anyway. thing. Like, yeah, we, we ended up, Lee and I had, like, watching the film, ended up getting into a wonderful Huge. discussion yeah. about... Okay, so ne- both of us are, I guess, atheists. Like, we don't believe in God or an afterlife and things like that. So what, what are our kind of belief structures? It was nice to actually just sit down and... So, like... It, Spoiler alert, I didn't like this film, <laughs> but it, it prompted some really interesting and great conversation between a friend. So 100%. Yeah. It, yeah, we pretty much sat through this discussing all... Things. Life, the universe, and everything, <laughs> to quote <laughs> Douglas Adams. 42. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I enjoyed. The film, not so much. Not my cup of tea. But at the end of the day, that's what's super interesting, though, is sitting down watching a highly religious film ended up putting us into a position where we ended up having a wonderful theological and existential conversation about our belief structures, which is like, at the end of the day, that's fucking Affected. rad. <laughs> like, good yeah. for this movie. 
Yeah. Um, and that, you know, and I think we were trying to then go, okay, let's move beyond the religious aspect of this film. Let's concentrate on silent film and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And you brought up a whole bunch of silent films that you love and silent directors yeah. that you love. And, um, and I think that's where we've got to with it. Yeah. So basically, um, you know, as I sort of said in the plot synopsis there from Criterion, it is the, the film opens with, uh, it, it's kind of the lead up to, it's, it's the classic Jesus story, essentially. Like, you know, you have the, hey, the, the Roman, like Caesar and the Romans hear about this guy who's off healing, like, you know, preaching that he's the son of God and he's here healing, you know, lepers and things and like people, you know, blind children blind and whatnot. Children, yeah. And, you know, he has his followers and, you know, yeah, then that leads it and you have Mary Magdalene, you know, you have him kicking the moneylenders out of the church. Uh, sorry, out, yeah, out of the temple and leading up to Last Supper, you know. Being, you know, caught at the Garden of Gethsemane. Like, yeah, this is all my religious school upbringing coming into play. Actually, I have to just comment on, um, even though we've both of the same religion uh, growing up, uh, you were very knowledgeable. I'm like, what is happening here? And you're oh, this is, um, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like, my whole thing of, like, being someone who doesn't believe in God or Jesus or any of that is um, know what you're talking about. The last thing I ever wanted to be is a shitty whiny atheist or non-belief like i don't consider myself an atheist i yeah because I, I just that was another big discussion yeah we we'll get, well, i don't want to yeah it's easy for the podcast to say we are than to yeah, exactly then we, to, the podcast yeah. could be about our beliefs rather than the, <laughs> the film the actual, like, be yeah, honest. that would be actually kind of funny to have a like <laughs> hour-long discussion on like our beliefs and yeah, then be like all right thanks that's will be the milk yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but it's um i I wanted to be informed about something that I didn't, that a lot of people in the world and a lot of people I know and are close in my life actually believe and care about. So it's like, I actually want to have an educated, informed opinion instead of just being one of those shitty, whiny people that's like, oh, you fucking believe that? You're a fucking idiot. It's like, no, actually know the story and the text that they're talking about too. And and therefore for me watching it with you then, uh, each scene, you oh, this is what's happening or, or this is what happened to this person. So um, you kind of had a more educated uh, uh, approach to this film and you oh, you know, you'd kind of tell me about, oh, this this is what's happening right now. I gave you, the, I gave you, the, okay. I gave you like the study notes version of the yeah. plot as we were going through the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but therein lies my, my major problem with the film. Mm. Um, I, doing the research on this one and prepping the trivia and everything, I learned some stuff about the production, which is super fascinating, but also made me kind of go into this film being like, ugh, all right. Um, but I, I wanted to go in with a very open mind and, um, hoped that it would be a interesting way of presenting and telling the story of Jesus. Like, they would do something not necessarily, like, technical, like, because I know 1927, like, movies are not that old now. It's very new. Mm. So I wasn't expecting anything groundbreaking there, but just in terms of how they presented the story. Uh, instead, the narrative structure of the film is literally a beat for beat. This happens, and then yes. this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. And at no point... Does Cecil B. DeMille or anyone, like, does the film try to delve deeper into why is this happening? Why is G- why are people following Jesus? Let's get into the, the, the thematic elements of why is he a leader? Why is he a man of the people? Let's actually explore the character of Jesus mm-hmm. as opposed to just presenting a beat by beat of this is what happened. And, it's, and it's- I understand, like, a silent film, but... But I was, I, we actually, I asked you this question, um, during the film and I'm like, I've seen this story in film so Mm. many times told, but this is cinema in its infancy. Yes. And so that, that's what it did. And then from there you'd have, I mean, you know this better than me, but then, well, that story's now being told in cinema. Now let's explore it in a new way. Like let's reinvent it. Let's come at it a different way. So I was actually like, okay, so The Passion of the Christ, what other films have you... Well, Passion of the Christ is 2004, and that's a very... I have so many issues with that movie because it's just examining the the, the, the passion, which is like Mel Gibson hitting you over the head with a mallet of just like, look what this guy did for you! And it's just yeah. like, ugh, buddy. Yeah. Fucking 
chill out. <laughs> if you want to know, hear my thoughts on Mel Gibson and torture movies, uh, listen to uh, You Haven't Seen That episode on Braveheart. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, and the Will and Defoe one, what, what was well, that? Well, uh, like, other... You're saying that this film is, like, you've seen the story before, because it, it that's it. There's very, like, you know, you have the great story of it told, you have all of these Jesus Bible epics, and it's very seldom that you actually get a film that stands out that actually explores... Jesus as a person and as a character and Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ based off the Nico Kazantzakis novel super controversial because it actually delves into the nitty gritty and the interesting facts of like what if Jesus was a real guy what if it turns out he wasn't the son of Christ like you know let's explore Mm. and discuss these interesting things and then beyond that I understand that in film it's a very touchy subject to broach like because it's a populist art form and you know putting something out there that could potentially offend or upset a lot of people like scorsese and stuff got like death like fucking even kevin smith on dogma got death threats Mm. um but i think to explore like interesting theological stuff like that you need to go into the cinema is not necessarily i mean i and if i'm totally wrong and please listeners if you know some great examples please let me know send us an email because i would love to explore that but it, and do you know what? So when was Passion of the Christ? Two thousand and uh, nineteen eighty-eight. Oh no, the the Mel Gibson. Oh, sorry, Passion. Oh, sorry, I was thinking of Last Temptation. Uh, Passion was two thousand and four. Okay. All right. So then I'm thinking. Imagine a film like King of Kings or Passion of the Christ or any of the. Can you imagine a film like that coming out now? Would this is my question and maybe the question to the audience as well. Would a Jesus epic film, what, what, would the, what would the response in the culture be towards a film like, say, King of Kings or any of the other ones that we just discussed? Is, is there a popular audience for that anymore? One, I, I would say yes. Given that Passion of the Christ was, I think, it it's, was a massive box office hit. Like it's one of, I think it's in like the top 20 highest grossing films of all time. Okay. Like, Christians come out in droves to watch oh, it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But... I don't know, though. I don't know if it would stand today. I don't know if a film like the, King okay. of Kings... You, using that example, the idea of... If a film like The King of Kings, where, like, putting it in context of... In 1927, when this film came out, and, like, we'll get into it, but, like, the scope and what they did making this film... The should epic- Should be applauded. Yes. Yeah. The epicness of it. What I'm saying is, um... If you were to bring out, say, this exact film, but, like, transposed from a modern-day setting with, like, modern-day scale and scope yeah. and everything. Remove the Scorsese exploring, yeah, yeah, no, exploring like, kind of we, uh, We're using whatever. the King of Kings. We're, like, King of Kings, like, seemed like, uh, moment to moment, this is a Jesus film. This is what happened, you know, moment to moment. Would a film like that be made now? Would a film like that get an audience now? I know you're saying they come out in their troops, but like uh, a general kind of like everyone going to everyone yeah. went and saw. I went and saw Passion of the yeah. Christ. You know, um, would would this film have an audience now? I don't know. I don't. Okay, I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. Because of the like using if it was like a, like blow I kept saying like blow. yeah taking the king of kings it's not doing anything modern, new hey, nothing it's, new it's christian bale playing jesus instead yeah. of hb warner like it's, we're gonna watch him go through his whole crucifixion I would anyone I go see that film no because that and that draws back to my fundamental problem with this film it doesn't do anything mm. it just presents a play-by-play play of what happens it doesn't take its time and again i like massive asterisks of like i understand 1927's time and place and, and ability to do so but it doesn't explore the character or what no. jesus is going through and my ultimate argument of why like that's an issue you look at something like the passion of joan of arc by carl theodore dreyer mm-hmm. which comes out in 1928 it is one year one, after this. One year after this. And okay. through visual storytelling, Dreyer is able to get you so, like, the emotional, like... Still part. silent? Yeah, still silent. And that it tearing you fucking apart, that film, like, emotionally putting you in the plight and the thing that she, like, what she, Joan is going through versus... Like, I think I, like, I made the comment of, like, Passion of Joan of Arc... 
is like the the moonlight, like the gorgeous, like indie, great, like it's tangerine. It's the weird, like this wonderful outlier of like, hey, we're we're experimenting with cinema, and King of Kings is like Michael Bay, <laughs> like it's you you can't discount it for its production efforts and the style that went into making it but at the same time it's not saying anything and i think like and we will get into the production and all that sort of thing because there is so much i want to talk about it but in terms of the 1927 audience and cinema being again like how many years before this 20 years like in a populist format like because cinema like i I, yeah it it, it started as like a sideshow thing at carnivals but then eventually you got like uh, interesting filmmakers like uh, George Melies and things. I'm just using him as an example because coincidentally I watched Hugo again this week. <laughs> um, but it and so then it's it, it coming into the mainstream and actually becoming an art form and things is sort of the early 1900s. So I okay well in that case, in my opinion, and again audience listeners, please correct me if I'm wrong because I'm just saying my thoughts, but. In 1927, your average Joe is religious. Yes. Every, most people have religion. Uh, a film like King of Kings don't need to be, you know, tackling new content or questioning or whatever. Or it's delving, blue, yeah. Delving. It's, it's for maybe the first time. I Again, I'm very limited in my film knowledge around that time, but... Maybe for the first time, these people who are reading the Bible or going to church are finally seeing their story, which they love, in this brand new art form. This would be mind-blowing in the mm. 20s. Yep. This would be mind-blowing. If, if this is what you believe and this is this is your faith and this is you've only ever read it in the bible or you've only ever you finally I, get I, to see yeah. it in like like almost real life cinematic this would be amazing I, I you i go back to using the title of the the 40s film where it's like the greatest story ever told like mm. these the bible like cecil b demille is adapting quote unquote like the greatest story like this important historic like Everyone knows the story and holds the story dear to them, and, yeah, and yeah. to and see it depicted on the depict, screen. You're finally yeah. seeing it in this. This you've only ever read it or, or listened to it or whatever, and you're finally. It, it's something that you know your entire it. life, and now you actually get to see in, in this wonderful new art form a visual yes. representation of it. In 1927, you do not need it to be, you know, like you were saying, explored or questioned or you know have a purpose. You know, from from start to finish, this is what it is. You believe this. Mm. You just, you just. This is fact. Yeah, and and the the amount of craft that went into the production in terms of, um, like even simple things like uh, lighting effects were great. Yes. Uh, costume design, <laughs> fantastic. It's like, so funny because I think you know in 1927, like I'm saying, that audience would have just like eaten this up yeah <laughs> but you and i we've seen we've seen multiple films about this topic and all that and so it's not like kicking in for yeah. us but then every now and then we'd be talking and then every now oh, that, look that at that is, lighting that's a gorgeous that shot. is a gorgeous shot yeah. and, and and i think my favorite scene was i I'm, I'm i think it was like one of the beginning scenes where um, Mary Magdalene is swanning around in a little yeah. like sexy 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 that's like the opening scene yeah and then um, there are literally literally swans in that in the <laughs> pool, and a cheetah and zebras. And I don't know if that monkey was real, but that monkey was <laughs> fucked up. Anyway, yes. um, you know, and so the the moment where she meets Christ, um, I love slash hate this scene because um, the the scene for me where she has her little shadows talking to her and trying to convince her to not... She, she essentially has the seven deadly sins appearing on her shoulder as ghostly images, like... Uh, amazing. Yes. So good. Yeah, and it so looked like something out of a Monod film. It was fantastic, yeah. So well-designed, well-filmed, well-executed, so, like, that was my favourite scene of the whole film. And, yes, and it was three minutes in. <laughs> And yet, I really hate it. And again, we've prefaced it th- this whole um, 
podcast with our beliefs and stuff and I hate it because she not succumbs but she she decides to follow Christ and so what does she do she like puts her thing over her head and covers up her body and I'm like oh girl you are so sexy you yeah. don't you can have your faith you don't need to like there was like my little like feminist moment I'm yeah. like oh no <laughs> well that's what's so, like I like I, like I said earlier like I was going into this being like ugh but then as the film started I was kind of in because our opening is all through like our protagonist we're essentially set up for the first 10-15 minutes is Mary Magdalene and I was like mm. oh shit this that's is that's interesting are we going if this film now then presents the story of Jesus through the people's lives that he affected that is super fucking interesting and I'm very in for it and in particular the way that they presented Mary was um, I mean granted 1927 they they couldn't really explicitly say it wasn't hey, she was a prostitute yes but what DeMille, what what the filmmakers did then to kind of get that across was instead of making her a prostitute where they they shifted her into be just a woman who has power over mm. men mm-hmm. and it was fucking rad mm. she she is she's presented early on as this just woman who is powerful and has control and has agency and is super interesting and seeing that in a 1927 silent film was like I, I just want to watch her now, this whole fucking movie. <laughs> and, I, and I love her dilemma when she meets Christ and then all that. And then for the rest of the film, she's demure, she's hidden, she's covered, she's not very interesting. Which, again, are you just chalked in 1927s of like, well, a strong, independent woman, she, with the power of Christ, she learned her place to be subservient. Yes. <laughs> like, uh. And I think, like, I had to, in a way, I had that dilemma going through this film of... Okay. Well, yes. We've we've got to move past that and then yeah. look at the film and and all that sort of yeah. thing. But for me, she was the most interesting part of the whole thing. And she just disappears, faded out. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, again, that's the problem of the plot of this film is just as if they took the Bible and were like, "This happens. This happens. This happens." I mean, and all the subtitle like individual dialogue is, is just quotes from the Bible. So. By doing that, they're avoiding any actual analysis or in-depth connection to the characters. In a way, for me, this film is almost not a film. I love that they had scripture. And in the way where it was like Peter this or something else that, and to be honest, it wasn't that character speaking. No. Um, It was... You know what you're watching when you see that Peter three dot thirteen. Sorry, I don't know what I'm like saying. <laughs> but you know that you're not. Oh, I don't even know if I would call it a documentary. It's not. It, I don't know. Okay, what it is. I, I have it's the a per- reenactment. I don't it, know. It, what is it is like you're watching an unsolved mysteries reenactment. <laughs> You need Peter Robert Stack to just be like the couple left their house at this time. Jesus left the temple at eleven fifty nine. But you're you're totally right. It is because it is. They they I think it's it's presented in such a clinical way. I think is a good word that's to use for exactly it. Exactly the word for it, and that's what makes it work. If it didn't have the scripture in the Peter three point one three, sorry. Yeah. Um, then I'd be like, what are you doing? Yeah. But it's it's cinema. It's the greatest story ever told, whatever. Yep. It is. We are taking the Bible and we are reenacting it in this brand new media form. Yeah. And I think you, you can't fault DeMille and the production for its dryness and its clinical approach no. because, again, 1927, they have such reverence for the source material that they are we cannot de- like we're making a film about Jesus we can no. only use this text we yes. can't it is it is it's unbecoming Bible. yeah for us <laughs> yeah it, it, it is this is the Bible and we are fucking sticking to it yeah. like we, we are just we, we can't indulge we can't examine we can't discuss no. because that is not a thing you do it is Bible. literally a reenactment of the Bible and in today's age it 
it's not interesting enough for the audience. If someone were to make King of Kings today, there'd have to be some kind of character yeah. analysis or examination or whatever, but they weren't doing that then. Yeah. And it's like, I, I brought up Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc where like, I think like... That's a year later. That's crazy. But at the same time, he has leeway to examine the character in the in-depth and like kind of break that down a little bit further because... It's not Jesus. Like, like they. It's a blessing and a curse that they made this film. I guess that they are they are beholden to make the most like non-confrontational, accessible mm. film ever made at that time. Oh, because 100%. on a most epic scale. But like, okay, so the audience would have eaten that up. Mm. There's no need to be confrontational. I'm just thinking in my head right now of all the different films that people have just got upset about like i'm thinking in my head um harry potter people burning copies of harry <laughs> potter you know like i know that's not a good example but i'm like well i mean he is a that's witchcraft i mean <laughs> i'm fucking with them also this... fyi fuck jk rowling just, just, on, just an aside there <laughs> she who shall not be named yeah. um but but the, uh, <laughs> in a way the opposite mm, yeah <laughs> All the religious people would be like, oh, yes. Yeah. This is great. Which is like, and, you know, while we're watching the film, you you brought up, like, why, like, we're having the discussion of why is this in Criterion, like, and it's... I was searching for that reason. Yeah. Like, and, and like I said, with my, the Mary Magdalene, with her, like, uh, inner voices, that was amazing and Mm -hmm. that was a thing like we got talking and talking we'd stop all of a sudden that shot is awesome (laughs) you know what i mean and for me what was i I loved was the um i don't really know what the um term is but the dialogue uh the subtitles i believe they actually were called back then yes the backgrounds of the subtitles i don't know again i'm very i'm not very knowledgeable about this era but uh, for me, whenever I think of silent films, I think of the black screen with the white subtitles. But as this film progressed, I'm like, hang on. Every scene that we see the subtitles, the image changes mm. depending on who's talking. So there was um, a scene where Jesus was talking and all that, and you've got the, um, the Holy Cross with the... Yeah, um, it's, like a, it's like a backlit light, silhouette. Yeah, light shining through. And then I remember when um, he was being not not crucified but condemned, and they had the... Like, you had the silhouette of arms with the fists in the air. Just you like, had the, the rubble, 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 rubble. rubble. And I'm like, <laughs> hang on, this is cool. I love this. The, the, the dialogue frames, the subtitle frames the backdrop for those adapted and changed depending on who was speaking and where we were in the narrative. Mm. It, it's like one of those, I hate to say it, rare instance, instances of an artistic flair within this film. Yeah. And there are a couple and we'll, I think we should probably go through them now, but like that, you're right. That's something that. I loved that. That yeah. was very good um, because. And we only noticed it like an hour and a half into the film. Like. And it was interesting for me because I wonder if, like, on set, the actors uh, actually say their lines. Because you watch, again, I'm not very familiar with silent films, but you watch the actors mouth their lines mm-hmm. and then it cuts to the um, dialogue. And I was really, like, for me, it was very quick to just, like, go between and not um, not, not have a put pause out. Yeah. or put out by it. And... Um, you know, I was just imagining, oh, poor things. They don't realize you can do that at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> like, you know, modern day subtitles, yeah, yeah. you can just put it at the bottom. But, yeah, I, yeah it's interesting. I wonder, yeah. Well, they didn't quite have that technology at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, and it, it's those wonderful little artistic flares. Like like, like you said, having on those subtitles, it, it's a subtle detail that helps whether or not you take it on a, on a like conscious level, it's informing how you're reading the dialogue on screen based on the image that it's being presented over. And it, it's great. Yeah. It doesn't, it helps guide you through the story. Exactly. And, and I found for me who never watches silent film to be, uh, continuing through the motions of the, or the emotions of the scene because of that background image. I thought that was very good. Hmm. 
Um, and again, like uh, the my my favorite moment of the film is when Christ it's they hit the ninth hour and Christ is up on the hill at a Golgotha, like being crucified, and all hell breaks loose. And that was like, Ooh. this is what I kind of wanted. wanted. And it's 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 I know it's biased of me to say, but it's like when I think of a big studio silent film production or you know twenties thirties production. I want to see the spectacle. Spectacle, yeah. Especially, like, not necessarily for all, but, like, when it's a big budget studio film. I yeah. want to see, you know, the earth cave open and people fall down and rubble falling and that the was wind awesome. machine fucking earning its paycheck. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, and interesting camera angles and the production design. It was fantastic, that entire sequence. I feel like at that moment they're moving away from stage shows. Mm. And they're discovering cinema. Yeah, we can... This is how... We have this static image. What can we do to actually manipulate this one frame? How can we do it? We can use perspective. We can use models. We can use... Exactly. A miniatures. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, is that miniature? Um, And I think, you know, in 1927, they would have had a lot... Like I was saying, a lot of stage productions. And that's the moment where you suddenly realise they're discovering their medium. And they're like... Oh, we can play well, with this. Well, to me, the, there's one shot in particular where it's like, it's it's what I hoped this film would be, and it's this beautiful shot of Christ dragging his cross, going to be crucified, and it's, and the, it's the feet. It's the feet, and it's a fucking dolly shot, and it, you realize, holy crap, the camera is moving, and it is great, and it is beautifully framed, and it's visual storytelling that's all we need and it's uh, like the movement expresses everything we need within the frame i feel like there were moments of visual storytelling and you were actually saying that um another silent film you saw had like 12 oh yeah i i was talking about because there's so many um subtitle frames of like scripture like scripture uh, i wish i had the actual number and or kept a count but it's it's something like 60 to 80 there's a lot of frames and um i'm i'm a big acolyte of uh, buster keaton i fucking love that man and his thing would be he famously has said like you know most pictures would have you know 40 50 60 dialogue frames but it's if you're doing your job as a filmmaker you only need about 20 Mm. because he like understanding film is a visual medium that's it the point is to get across if you can't get across with your visuals you don't deserve dialogue yeah so and but again like Going back, giving this film a pass of like it is what it is, and it, the, yeah. This film is trying to get as much scripture in as possible, yeah. but I know what you mean. They want to have are... the greatest hits of the Bible <laughs> on the screen. But there are moments in this film, like the Mary Magdalene scene, like the foot scene, and I know what you mean. That mm. foot scene to me uh, stood out like a sore thumb because it was something different. Dolly it was visual. Shot. It was the one. It was visual storytelling, yes. and and you're like. Oh, you are discovering film. Yep. You are not just filming a, a stage, a mm. stage production. You're not a sound stage, whatever you want to call it. You are discovering film. And it, that, for me, was the most exciting yeah. thing of the film, was watching the director um, go, oh, I can do close-ups. Yeah. Oh, I can do these imaginative things. It's like, It doesn't have to be I a love, flat, wide shot. We can I actually play. that, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, which is then you see, like, like I said, a year later, Dryer with Joan of Arc. Like, you know, you see it build as an art form. So, like, this film definitely deserves its place and is worth seeing because of... It, it's the first epic, and it's the first film that's trying to tackle a... This is like doing the Hunger Games, like or or like Fifty Shades of Grey. It's a very, it's taking a very popular novel and adapting it to fucking screen for the mass populace. And it it fulfills its purpose in doing that. Yes. It's not doing anything new. It's not subverting the text. It's not examining it. It's just presenting, presenting it. Presenting yeah. it in this brand new visual moving art form. Yeah. And I can guarantee you, everyone in nineteen twenty seven would have eaten it up. Yeah. Um, in particular, we, we can't not talk about the Technicolor. That, for me, was amazing. Yeah. 
So, uh, for those that haven't seen it, which I'm guessing is many of you, <laughs> it's um, after Christ dies on the cross and it's the resurrection three days later, all of a sudden we sort of have this... Easter iris- colours. No, yeah, so you have this iris in of him on the cross and he's died and then we come back and all of a sudden we are in colour mm. in 1927. Mm. Um, it uh, doing the research. It's a one of the first attempts at toying with technic early Technicolor. So mm. actually trying to experiment with can we make a color film stock? Which is why on the side of the frame you see that like flickering red. Yeah. Um, because there was a lot of filmmakers like George Melies and things where they presented silent films in color, but they hand painted every frame. <laughs> to yeah, get fuck it in, that. Yeah, to get it in color. That's how much they love their art. They would uh spend hundreds of hours actually individually painting every frame to make it in color. I actually love that. That's yeah. very cute. So this was a kind of a amalgam of both of that. There were some things heightened by additional color painting as well as a, experimenting with initial Technicolor. This was the first Technicolor stock used as an attempt to, can we do this? Ever. Ever. And it, wow. it was highly expensive, which is why it never, was it took... one scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, shit, you go back to even, I think it's in the... 50s there's the academy award for best cinematography color and black and white like colors it took that long like another 30 years for color film to really take over and become a thing um yeah that's crazy um but it's again one of those moments like with him dragging the cross where you're like oh shit visual storytelling you're actually telling the audience something visually what you want to present in your story and that's elation and joy because he's under. Yeah, it, essentially, yeah. yeah. It, it's like you're you're present like you know the eyes of the filmmakers and whatever they're presenting. Like you know, Jesus is risen, and this is the moment of people actually understanding this guy is the Son of God and mm. whatever. So it is like all of a sudden, color and bright. They going back to the opening scene where it's the kid. He the first instance we see of Jesus is him making a little girl who is blind see, and now mm. the film ends with us. Going from black and white to color, we now as an audience are able to see and blah, 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 blah. Ah. Yeah. You're a clever man, Chris Swan. Oh, I just made that up on the <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I have two questions before we move on to mm-hmm. trivia and other things. Um, so films in 1920s, you know how we have Netflix and Stan and just going to the cinemas mm-hmm. and we have too much to watch. Like, yep. it's just ridiculous. Like, no one can ever watch these things. In the 1920s, how many films do you reckon were out at the cinemas at that time? Like, if you went to the cinemas, would you have the option of a few different films or was it that this is the film that's showing? No, it was a wide variety, a lot of shorts as well and this was also the heyday of the beginning the burgeoning of animated shorts as well um you know and then but it was a lot of uh, yeah like shit like chaplin and keaton and wc fields and all of these like i'm i'm a big comedy fan so i just go to the comedy directors but it was like they would make 20 30 movies a year not all of them would necessarily be feature length. Like, I think the kid is only like 67 minutes. Like, So in the 1920s, if you went to the cinema, you wouldn't just go see, like, this is, how many minutes is this long? Uh, oh, God, this is two hours, 40 minutes. All right, well, you're going to see that. There, well, there are two cuts, apparently. There's an hour, there's a 113-minute cut or a, and you, Lisa's looking at me like, why the fuck did why we watch didn't that? Why did we watch that one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... I just like the idea of thinking back going like now we go to the cinemas as the previews and the ads and all that. Then you go see the feature film. But in the twenties, I just want to imagine what that would have been like. Do you, well, yeah, you'd only go see this film, but Mm. yeah. It's, there was a wide variety, but I think it was more a, you go to the movies as something to do, not necessarily to be. Yeah. It was an event thing. You got dressed up, you went out and like, and then that slowly evolved into like something like a makeshift babysitter that television would eventually become. Like the kids would just go off. And, yeah. Um, but it's also, yeah, the, at the same time, it was something like this was a big deal and a big spectacle film that became like one of the first blockbusters, like before blockbuster was a thing. Yeah. Like, and that's, that's why I was questioning this. It's not more about curiosity about the twenties, but I'm like, this would have been huge. Yeah. This, what's interesting about this film is it is essentially the, 
one of the prime go-to examples of the creation of the modern studio system. Which is why I think it, it's, it's like, A, it's one of the first big epics and, you know, that's its importance and why it's in Criterion. But it's also the, one of the first times where a studio is banking everything on this one film and they've put so much money and so much time and effort into making this one giant production that is nearly three hours long. <laughs> like, huge. Huge thing. And... From that and a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff in, like, you know, trivia that I'll go into, it's, it is what, it is laying the seeds for what would become the studio system of, like, you know, producers and the company running of, like, this is how we make this stuff, this is how you behave, this is how we do it, and this is what, to get, to get this essentially end goal of making something that is popular for everybody to go see. Yeah. And my second question was... Um, so this is a silent film. Yeah. So in the cinema, they would have had the film real playing, mm-hmm. but sound would have been a separate entity. Mm-hmm. I have this weird <laughs> uh, thing in my um, head where like there's a piano player at the front of no, the No, that, that was a common thing. And yeah, if you, like someone uh, plays a piano at the front I, of the cinema. Yeah, I think why I love Buster Keaton so much is because when I was maybe 11 or 12 i went on an exchange thing and i was in adelaide of all places and we went to a theater and i saw a projection of buster keaton's the general with a live organist when i was like 11 and it broke my brain and it made me just i think that's why i'm a keaton over chaplin guy um it just early it was my first exposure so for films like this they're there would be some settings where you would have live musicians play because they didn't have an audio track on the film. There was, so it's not like they'd have a vinyl with a thing and then that would thing. be well. That would be some some like smaller places. There would be hey, if you, like sub run bookings and things, or like you know the films out for smaller theaters. It's here. Take you have a copy of the film, and here is the vinyl music that you play on phonograph. While the film is playing. Yeah, so phonograph, so you'd have your record thing. and then Out you'd have, through your speakers and you'd things. You'd have the actual physical film and you'd get the two together. Yeah, or you'd project the film through your film projector. And then, and then at the, the same time you would sync up and drop the needle on your record. And then at the, or you would have live musicians like or, or an organist. Because what I found really interesting was um, there was... I'm really sorry, but the (laughs) Jewish scene. Oh, okay. (laughs) And and there was like voices and like yeah. So I'm like, well, if you're just playing this music, you can't get the that there was the Jewish sorry Jewish scene, but it's like they're all like singing, you know. Yeah, it's like a a a classic hymn or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And, but later in the film, you get the coins dropping into when um Judas gets his twenty pieces of silver or whatever. And I'm like. Okay, well, we're not playing this on a piano. This is this is a this is a score. This is a this is a sound piece that needs to be played with the film. And so, how do you achieve that in a live theater audience? Maybe nineteen twenty seven. They're a little bit more advanced than what I was talking about prior. Yeah, it would either be through a vinyl record or something like, or like a taped recording that they're able to kind of project out, mm. or it would be the live organist or musicians would then actually do those sound effects cues live. And it's really interesting because, like you were saying about you you saw that film with a live... Um, it's funny because now in Melbourne... Um, well, not now in Melbourne because of lockdown, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I've been... I've attended things where it's like, um, all right, we're going to go see um, Star Wars and it's going to have a live... Um, not, well, not like even the, symp- a, the symphony orchestra. Symphony orchestra. Mm. So you get to watch your film that you've seen a million times before, but you get to see it with a live, you know. And it's for me that is like the, like oh, so cool. Sidebar conversation. So which ones have you actually seen with the MSO? Um, I only think it's um the first. Uh, yeah. What have you seen? <laughs> <laughs> So a new hope, like the first Star, the Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. I say the first one, I mean the first one. Yeah, you not mean Star Wars. One. Yeah, Star mm-hmm. Wars. 
Um, yeah, I saw, um, well, the most recent one I saw, I got to go as a reviewer and watched um, uh, The Evil Dead. Fuck off. With uh, actually uh, Joe LaDuca, who composed the score, was there conducting and doing it. But it was a pared down because it's The Evil Dead. Um, so they don't have the full MSO. They only had tw- uh, about 12 or 13 players from the MSO doing it. And it was fucking sick. But I love that you can go see a film that you've seen a million times. You're like, well, I can never yeah. not re-watch this film for the first time. And then you go see it with mm. like a, you know... My, my ultimate one was, because um, my favourite film score of all time is uh, Alan Silvestri's score of Back to the Future. And oh. so I, I got to go and see them do that. And that, yeah. that blew my socks off. I think that that's that's the greatest film score ever. Yeah. But, yeah. I'm just thinking, like, when I was watching this, I was like, did they have someone with their little piano playing or, or was there a mm. score? And then I was just thinking, like, oh you know, how good it is to go and see a film, not a stage production, not a musical, but a film with a live score. Yeah. So fucking Where cool. Where it's, it's actually engaged. It feels like it's actually engaging you with the film, what's happening more so than, you know, there's someone up in the booth who clicked a button and pressed play. Yeah. yeah. And everyone in that audience is there loving it sick. Oh, man. When I was watching The Evil Dead, I'm um, sitting, there was like a spare seat next to me and then beyond that spare seat was a father who had brought his like 13 14 year old daughter for the first time to see evil dead and it was the it made it so great she ate it up and was cheering and laughing and like grabbing it out like holy shit get the chainsaw like it was just like that warms my like yeah it's like movies are magic everybody (laughs) i'm gonna take a pause Mm -hmm. because chris is gonna edit this out but um my favorite and it's not cinema you're gonna edit this out so it's fine was um we went to see the legend of zelda Mm. um and what they did was they played like scenes from you know all of the legends of zelda but it was a live symphony orchestra Mm. playing yeah do they have like visuals of the games or stills or paintings and stuff in the back and it was so good because what i loved about it was that it gave like you're cutting this out but i'm not cutting this out by the way oh yes (laughs) it's like oh i've got to go back and play that game like fuck yeah windfish what's that from yeah it it makes you engage with the art more than than being a passive person sitting on the couch doing it like which Which again, like drawing it back to King of Kings, why this is such an important and interesting film is because the scope and the spectacle was something that hadn't been seen by mainstream audiences before. Look at that fucking brought it right back around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can keep that in now because we made it about King of Kings. No, but I'm not kidding you. If I was an 18-year-old in 1927 and I saw the King of Kings, I would have lost my marbles. That film would have blown my socks off. As as people watching it in 2020, um, and especially if you have an understanding of what other silent films are coming out in that era, what other artists are doing in different parts of the world. Like, I mean, shit, you even go, like, a couple of years later, you've got Ozu doing amazing silent films over in Japan. Um, it's... You see it for... Yes, it's grand and great on a spectacle but it's not doing or saying anything which is very kind of a bummer but but also in the 1920s no one's questioning religion (laughs) they're Um, just loving it sick yeah it's it's an interesting film to watch because like we said it's like the proto blockbuster it's the proto studio system film and but it's not a fun watch. Like, I did not like this film. Um, yeah. <laughs> Look, you know what? It's not on the rewatch list, no. and that's fine. Mm. Um, but, I mean, was there anything else? Like, we, we've, we've broad-stroked it because, Do you again, know what? It's, it's just, so funny. Yeah. I've got these notes in front of me, and I've got, like, I, I don't even know what I've written through this, but I've got mail, lipstick, oh, yeah, question you, mark. Yeah, you're loving that all, <laughs> that all the guys are wearing, like, lipstick and heavy eyeliner because it's 1920s and silent films, so you are got to make them pop. I love it. I'm like searching for the notes. Yeah, you're just trying to like write down anything to talk about. That's like, no, it's fine. No. Um, well, okay. In that case, I will jump over onto trivia. And uh, what's going to come from this is a lot. I've got a lot of production stories about them making this film. So I'm a, you've you've been you've been touching. 
touching on this, but not allude, like not telling me. Yeah, so I was kind of, I was kind of saving this. it for these kind of stories, and yeah. then we'll kind of go from there. So uh, Cecil B. DeMille did not want to take any chances with the film. Um, so with his two stars, H.B. Warner, who played Jesus, and Dorothy Cumming, who played um, Mary Magdalene, uh, they were required to sign agreements which prohibited them from appearing in film roles that might compromise their, in air quotes, uh, holy screen image for a five-year period. Are you kidding me? No. DeMille also ordered them to not be seen doing any, quote, unbiblical activities during the film's shooting. Uh, these activities included attending ball games, playing cards, uh, frequenting nightclubs, swimming, and riding in convertibles. And it's at this moment where I chime in and I say, <laughs> I'm sorry, I've tried to be like, fuck it. I'm like, kind to this movie. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with the, the kindness. The whole way through the film, I'm like, I just want to punch people. <laughs> yeah, we were very... Yeah, I was waiting for the vitriol to come out on this. Um, yeah, and so that's where I kept saying, like, this is like the proto... The beginnings of the studio system, where a, produ a production is mandating things that flow over beyond the actual making of a piece of art. And it is affecting the life. Like, the fact that... I feel sorry for those actors. H.B. Warner and Dorothy Cummings were not allowed to act in any unbecoming films for five years technically jeopardizing their, their career. career and then also or play cards on set or no the big ones go swimming i mean like what go the swimming? fuck <laughs> like well because she'd have to be in a bathing suit and mary magdalene's a holy figure and she can't be seen in a bathing suit all right you know what <laughs> like i said through this whole film i've tried to be a bit more I'm really livid. Yeah, this is where, this is where the, <laughs> we preface. Like, I realized we opened this episode with a, hey, we want to be careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Religious. And this yeah. is the point where we're like, fuck Jesus. All right. Yeah. <laughs> no, but fuck 1920s bullshit. Yeah. It, and okay. So I'll keep going. Keep going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go. Uh, so each day of filming was followed by group prayers. So when they were done for the, after a All hard right. day of filming, they made the fucking key grip come down for a group prayer. I know I said I wouldn't interrupt, but <laughs> Jesus Literally. Mm. Yeah. Are you, talking, are you talking about HP1? <laughs> um, okay. This is where it gets interesting. What? It's not already? Okay. No, okay. Okay. So during shooting, HB Warner was driven to the set in a closed car with blinds down, wore a black veil, and when he left the car from the for the set and ate alone. Uh, to ensure the cast and crew observed a suitable level of reverence between H towards HB Warner as Jesus Christ, no, no one except director Cecil B. DeMille was allowed to talk to him when he was in costume. It's moments that like this, it's, you know what, 2020 has been a hard year. It's moments <laughs> like this that make me thankful I live now. <laughs> yeah. So, so the reverence of this man, even me? just plain Jesus was, we can't, we have to hide him and make it this giant spectacle, which, because I've done this research before watching the film, and so watching it, when I'm like, oh, there's going to be this fucking sweet, epic reveal of him as Jesus, and it's such a lackluster coming into focus. Um, <laughs> can I like, just Ugh. say, like, we're not trusting our actors to act at that point. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, the pressure of playing Jesus ultimately had an effect on Warner and uh, resurrected his former drinking problem. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not the pressure of being Jesus Christ, it's the isolation that <laughs> ensued from playing this Jesus Christ. So, I, I, I alluded to Lee while we were watching the movie, like, I would have, like, way more, I just want to watch a movie about the making of this movie. Oh, man. Like, hearing all of these weird, wacky stories. Um, H.B. Uh, Warner, uh, who played Jesus, uh, was involved in a real-life scandal with an anonymous woman who set out to intoxicate and generally debauch him. <laughs> I love some of the wording of this trivia. Uh, having done so, <laughs> uh, having succeeded in her mission, uh, she summoned DeMille to her dressing room where on the floor in a state of alcohol and post-coital contentment lay Warner, who was playing the King of Kings. Uh, the price for her silence was high, but unfortunately due to DeMille's power at the studio, uh, she didn't get it. Uh, before she could collect her blackmail money, uh, men from the district attorney's office arrived and she was urged to either leave the country or face jail time. Holy shit, I want a movie about the making of this movie. You had me at post-coital. 
so <laughs> breaking that down, a woman who worked on the film as an ex- like an extra theory, or like a small bit knew the contracts that were signed by these actors. Knew H.P. Warner was a re- relapsing alcoholic. Got him drunk, compromised him, fucked him, t- like, and then used tried to blackmail the studio, and then had to leave the country. country. Why is that not a movie? She's now in Sweden. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm loving this yeah. more than the actual film. Yeah. Um. So that's like that's really about it for the juicy stories. But like, holy crap, right? Wonderful. Um, the the idea, like, that's why I said like I went into this film with a sour taste in my mouth. Is the studio and Demille like putting these pressures on these actors and like you you know because of their re- like forcing their reverence for Jesus and the story they're telling onto the lives of these it's like it's kind of fucked it's actually interesting because it shifted my thoughts on the whole film you know mm. I was like people in 1927 would have eaten this up and I'm like nah people in 1927 haven't sex and you, like <laughs> you, you, know, you see you got you see HB you gotta play the part because that's how you get the money and that's how we'll all become rich you see like, <laughs> fuck off people in 1927 hated this film <laughs> Um, so after considering, and then moving on to just some more bland trivia after those bombshells, yeah. uh, after considering, uh, Cena Owen, Gloria Swanson, who would later go on to Sunset Boulevard with DeMille. Was she in this? No, uh, Gertrude Lawrence, Vilma Banky, and Raquel Miller for the role of Mary Magdalene. Cecily DeMille chose Jacqueline Logan. Oh, sorry. I kept saying Dorothy Cumming was, uh, she was Mary, not Mary Magdalene. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he chose Jacqueline Logan after she told him. I don't want to play her as a bad woman, but as a woman who doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. Fuck yeah. Way to go, Jacqueline. That's how she got the part. So giving a bit more substance to her character then. Yeah. Um, some other interesting one. While uh, Cecilina Mill was shooting the crucifixion scene, uh, pioneering director D.W. Griffith uh, visited the set and the two talked for a while. Uh, before DeMille got ready to shoot the next scene, he impulsively handed Griffith the megaphone and said, you shoot this one. Uh, Griffith, Griffith then shot the scene of a group of Christ uh, persecutors gathering around the foot of the cross. Um, yeah, just a nice little, hey, that's cool, like, yeah, early film people. Yeah. Um, and I kind of teased you with this one while we were watching the movie. Uh, the Temple of Jerusalem set was constructed uh, on the Pathé, later RKO Backlot, in Culver City. You're wondering where this film was shot. It's yes. called Culver City Studios in California. Uh. So it's just L.A. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, It was redressed as the Great Wall set uh, for the title character Breakthrough in King Kong in 1933. It was later reused in David O. Selznick's uh, In the Garden of Allah and finally went went out in a blaze of glory after it was redressed with the Civil War era building fronts and burned to the ground in Gone with the Wind. Thank God for that. Yeah, but that's kind of cool, the fact that this... It's Big been epic ongoing. set got repurposed and yeah. changed, and it's nice Hollywood history stuff. That is cool. I like mm. that. Uh, but we'll move on to the Criterion edition itself. Uh, so the film is still in print from Criterion as a two-disc DVD. Uh, it has a new and restored digital transfer of both versions of The King of Kings. Uh, Behind-the-scenes footage of the making of The King of Kings cast portraits by photographer W.M. Mortensen, production and costume sketches by renowned artist Dan Sayer Grosbeck, uh, still gallery of rare production and publicity photos, illustrated program and press book featuring photographs from the film's gala premiere at Grauman's Chinese Theatre. Oh, yeah. Uh, this was the first film ever played at Grauman's Chinese Theatre. Oh, fuck yeah. I've been there. So have I. I went and saw, uh, weirdly, another movie with crucifixions. I saw Martin Scorsese's Silence at Grauman's. Nice. It's a movie that has a lot of Christianity and Silence. Jesus dying. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice theatre. Um, yeah, it's the original theatrical trailer book and essays the Criterion usually do. Excellent. Uh, any final thoughts on The King of Kings? Um, do you know what? Out of all the podcasts we've done recently, I probably enjoyed this one the most. <laughs> Not as a film, but more the discussion? Like, or, yeah, yeah, the discussion. I've had a really nice time on this one. Mm, it's been yeah. fun. It, it, uh, it's... Would I rewatch it? Hell no. Yeah, I did not like this film. Um... Not, not necessarily because of the subject matter, just because of the execution. Um, yeah, I mean, but 
it holds its place in film history, I guess. I'd be interested if the listeners have any thoughts on why it's part of Criterion. Yeah. I'd love to hear your voice on this. Yeah, and also, um, like I said, any other kind of classic Jesus films that work to subvert or explore, that, like, let us know. We, we love to hear from you guys. Yeah, we do love to hear. Like, please, mm-hmm. please. Uh, on that note, I guess, uh, if you like, please send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at CriterionQuest. Otherwise, uh, we're wrapping up our Patreon commentaries for uh, Spooktober. Yes, I know. Spooky season, and we're slowly (laughs) moving into holiday season, so uh, we're going to be dropping our hereditary commentary track on the 1st of December, so head over to patreon.com slash criterionquest and helps us pay for making the show. Yeah, keep the lights on. Very excited. Haven't seen Hereditary. Love, love spooky horror, so I'm very excited for it. It's going to be a fun one. Um, but other than that, uh, we will be back in a fortnight's time with Kurosawa. Oh, fuck yeah. It's time for some more Kurosawa. Oh, fuck yeah. It's Kagamusha time. Oh. Very excited. We're moving into his, we're back in epic territory. It's great. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, but otherwise, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, for this week's episode, I'm Chris. I'm Lee. We'll catch you next time.